Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Middle East Studies. I'm James Dorsey, the host of the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Maliha Afsal about her new book, Pakistan Under Siege, Extremism, Society, and the State. Maliha, who is a um, non-resident fellow at the Brookings Institution in Washington, welcome to the show. I wonder if you could begin a bit, little bit about telling us intellectually about yourself. Hi, thanks for having me. Um, so I uh, have been uh, working on um, doing research on on Pakistan um, for uh, more more than a decade now. Um, I actually um, I, I was born and raised. Uh, Primarily in Pakistan, though I'd lived uh, in in the U.S. and in Canada growing up as well. Um, and uh, when I came to um, the U.S. for my uh, Ph.D., I started focusing on looking at um, elections uh, and and voter behavior and politician behavior in Pakistan. And right around the time that I actually um, started uh, working um, as, as faculty at the University of Maryland um, in 2008, Pakistan was going through um, and uh, sort of the, the beginnings of and a very violent part of uh, the insurgency um, by the Pakistan Taliban against the, against the state uh, and, and, you know, in the process of um, as we know, uh, over the next 10 years, uh, but really over the next seven, eight years, um, you know, more than 25,000 Pakistanis died in the, in the, in the process. Um, and, and Pakistan really at that point came to be defined, um, in terms of its struggle with extremism and terrorism. And, and so I knew that this is what I wanted to, um, what I wanted to study. And it really, um, and, and focus on understanding. Um, and so um, I'm trained as an economist. Um, so I actually did my, my PhD in economics um, in um, focusing on development economics and political economy, but really using, um, using econometric tools and microeconomic theory to parse through election uh, data uh, and, and, and um, uh, sort of uh, outcomes um, in the Pakistani context. But looking at the topic of extremism is something that really required sort of a retooling of of the approach. So it really required a much more interdisciplinary approach um, to studying it. But um, but, uh, to begin with, I, I, I started looking at you know, what the data could tell me about the topic. And so I really started looking at polling data and at attitudes towards um, extreme attitudes towards extremist groups um, in Pakistan and trying to relate it to, you know, quantitatively to whatever I could measure, income, education, um, gender. Um, and, and so started establishing uh, a picture that was much more, uh, much more sort of quantitative, uh, but, but interesting. Um, and uh, once, once I did that, you know, I realized that um, I needed to go into the field and, and really try to understand what was really driving attitudes, you know, what the attitudes were in the much broader sense than polling data. And, what it was and the narratives and the education system in Pakistan's uh, laws, et cetera, that was uh, driving attitudes towards uh, extremist groups uh, in, in Pakistan. Because, um, you, you know, what, what you saw at the, at the time and what really was sort of befuddling uh, was that while Pakistanis were being killed, um, it, it seemed with impunity by the state, by the way, because the, the state wasn't really engaging in any sort of decisive action against these terrorist groups. So, for instance, in 2009, it tried to it actually did um, put in place um, a peace uh, deal 
um, with um, the Pakistan Taliban in the Swat Valley uh, and allowed them to impose Sharia for a bit. Um, And that's actually, the Swat Valley is incidentally exactly where Malala Yousafzai was shot um, three years later uh, by the the Pakistan Taliban um, because she had actually written about about that time when the Pakistan Taliban kind of held sway in the Swat Valley and uh, were shutting down girls' schools and so on. but going back to uh, to to sort of the 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 topic at hand, um, essentially, you know, the, the Pakistani state was letting these groups kind of uh, operate with impunity, and Pakistani citizens had very um, sort of. Uh, confused narratives uh, about these groups. And this is something that, that we'll go into. And so I, I really felt that this is something that needed needed explanation. And so um, in, in, in some ways, in a, in a long kind of drawn out process, you know, that, that combination of um, looking at quantitative uh, data to understand the issue, plus going into the field, looking at narratives, uh, seeing what was written in the media, and really doing some in-depth historical research is um, what led me to to um, writing this, this book. <clears throat> Sorry. Uh, no, certainly when one reads the book, it's, it's very clear that it's based on a lot of factual polling data, and, and that's... Uh, gives it a lot of strength. Um, one of the things that struck me that in, in reading the book, uh, and, and on the one hand, you do do that, but on the other hand, sometimes I'm not sure that you do. Uh, and that is, you know, you have on the one hand the issue of, of terrorism or political violence and the attitudes towards that. And on the other hand, you have uh, uh, a society that's ultra-conservative, to a large extent, and that, and you do describe that in various ways, uh, and that is, uh, as such, not uh, not immune or not uh, not totally rejecting of, of of militancy or not necessarily violent militancy, but a very militant attitude towards the towards the other, uh, towards concepts of blasphemy. Uh, the way they perceive education and so on. Right. Um, so, so, so you're, you know, that that's a that's a great that's a great point because essentially in Pakistan, in some ways, you know, religion is inextricably um, tied. The the dominance of religion, the centrality of religion, the focus on it is sort of inextricably tied with, um, uh, with you know, the struggle it has had with terrorism and extremism and continues to have, um, especially with extremism, you know, terrorism has subsided in the country, partly because of sort of kinetic action that the Pakistani army finally took against um, the the Pakistan Taliban. You know, there's still pockets of terrorism. Um, The uh, election that was just held uh, in Pakistan last month was uh, quite a a violent one. Um, So terrorism... Uh, though has has abated, but extremism still exists, and um, and certainly it, it's it's tied in with um, with its uh, the focus on religion and its society and and sort of the the, the conservatism that that comes with it. Um, so I, I mean, I can if you'd like, I can sort of parse through some of uh, how it does so or we can or we can no please do please, do please okay. do so um so so you mentioned that pakistani society um is is quite conservative and you know part of that i, I would argue that the way it started in 1947 let's say you know at partition being conservative was because of um because of Religion, sure, but also because of cultural reasons that are common between Pakistan and India. Um, so you know the rural areas where where uh, where where sort of th- there might be tribal customs or or, or sort of customs of um, uh, patriarchy or um, you know sort of limited mobility and and parda for for women and so on. You know, sort of very conservative. Uh, customs weren't necessarily born out of religion. 
upon uh, partition and actually leading up to partition, you know, Pakistan really um, had to just sort of the, the Muslim League leading up to partition and Pakistan post-1947 really seized upon the idea of using Islam um, strategically um, to in order to unite the country that um, at that point obviously was separated into two halves between West Pakistan and East Pakistan um, uh, which in 1971 seceded to form Bangladesh, um, but then also had had very different ethnic um, uh, identities uh, within and ethnic and cultural identities within West Pakistan and 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 then uh, relative to East Pakistan. So the Pakistani state really used Islam um, and and you know as I as I show in the book it, it did did so through the progressive sort of um, Islamization of its legal system through um, its its curricula, Islamizing its curricula um, through um, giving into and giving sort of this platform to Islamist parties um, in a way that it Islamized the population. So the, the the population that was originally conservative has been Islamized from the top down um, in in many ways, um, though there has also been, uh, again, through this sort of top-down influence, kind of a bottom-up uh, Islamization in terms of um, madrasas that have flourished through, um, uh, you know, especially through Saudi funding that has come in from, uh, that, that, that started coming in, um, and, and Saudi influence that started coming in, uh, in particular during the 1980s, uh, when um, Pakistan uh, helped uh, in the U.S.-Soviet uh, uh, war in, in Afghanistan. Um, and, and so in that, in that, the society has, has been Islamized to such a degree, again, you know, the 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 buck stops stops with the Pakistani state, which has um, which has not only allowed it to be Islamized, but has actively fostered this Islamization because it believes it benefits the nationalist purpose uh, of the of the state uh, of keeping this country united and also keeping it permanently differentiated from India, which um, uh, it believes poses the greatest of all threats to it uh, and to its existence. Um, so so um, the, the Islamization then of the citizenry um, has made it hard uh, for them. And, and sort of the, the Islamization that has been... Um, uh, extreme in 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 some of its respects right and so um uh, and regressive uh in, in some of its respects so you know you mentioned uh the blasphemy law and i talk about the blasphemy law quite a bit in um in the in the book so that's part of the sort of the uh progressive and in in, in this case you know regressive islamization of the legal system you know pakistan put in place um a blasphemy law which criminalizes uh, offenses against the Quran and the Prophet and makes them punishable by imprisonment for life or death. And essentially, this blasphemy law um, in the in the country is thought of as um, as you know as a, a religious uh, imperative, and uh, the the population really has internalized this. And what this has done is uh, it makes it very hard for citizens to reject militant propaganda when militant groups also um, engage in. Um, uh, Sanctioning or you know uh, engage in violence against um, uh, against let's say those those uh, considered uh, considered blasphemous. So um, you know Pakistan's uh, most famous kaval um, Amjad Sabri was killed a couple of years ago uh, by uh, by terrorists who 
claimed that he had committed blasphemy um, uh, by, you know, singing singing the praises of of the prophet. And this is this is sort of Sufi music. He is actually was engaging in religious devotion, but because it was considered blasphemous by terrorist groups, you know, he was killed. And while he was very popular in Pakistan, you know, you didn't see a large outcry against his killing because when um, elements of Pakistan's own legal system that have, um, uh, that, uh, you know, have obviously been put in place by the state are invoked uh, and can be invoked to um, to target uh, its own citizens, um, then it, it's it's its population doesn't really know what you know what it can do or say. The other um, the other couple of aspects of this are um, thinking about the notion of jihad. You know, the the Pakistani army itself has used the notion of jihad uh, to defend and to um, to encourage to defend its its fights against India and also to encourage sort of this nationalism um, and um, to sort of uh, bring the citizenry on its side um, in the the wars that it fought with India in 1965 and 1971 um, and um, and you know it's um, it's uh, textbooks extol um, jihad you know both as sort of the internal jihad but talk about talk about armed jihad so again when um when uh terrorist groups talk about <laughs> talk about engaging in jihad uh it's no wonder that citizens are confused uh about about how to deal with them and i think the the, the final um aspect of how religion is is tied in with this is that the the very notion of why pakistan was created so um you know going back to 1947 jinnah um had though he uh himself you know there, there were uh he fostered some confusion on on the subject and we can talk about that you know his well, one can argue that his vision of of Pakistan was a state for muslims not necessarily an islamic state but others who were um, part of sort of the, the founding fathers of Pakistan, Alama Iqbal, for instance, had argued that Pakistan was the place to perfect an Islamic way of life. Um, and so it should be an Islamic state. Um, very quickly after partition, you know, it became clear that Pakistan was going to be on the path to becoming an Islamic state. Um, you know, Jinnah died in 1948 and 1949, the Objectives Resolution basically hailed Pakistan as, uh, as, as an Islamic state, at which the constitution of 1956 then firmed up. Um, so that, uh, notion uh, of Pakistan being an ideal kind of Islamic state is again something that terrorists uh, use. So you know the um, uh, the Pakistan Taliban, when it was engaging in this insurgency against the Pakistani state, would keep you know sort of uh, very effectively arguing that um, uh, the Pakistani state was not an ideal Islamic state. In fact, had no Islamic principles, and that. The whole goal of the Pakistan Taliban was to implement Sharia and Islamic law in Pakistan, and the state, the Pakistani state, because again, it, you know, it, it wasn't able to, um, it wasn't able to differentiate what its purpose was, or it wasn't able to defend itself, wasn't able to extricate, you know, its own narrative from sort of the grasp of, of militants. Uh, again, the citizenry, um, you, you saw, and I saw in my interviews and, and, and saw this in narratives all over the country, that there was some sympathy for the idea that the Taliban only wants to implement Islamic law in the country. A couple of things come to mind. One is, <clears throat> I mean, Pakistan's not the only Muslim state that has militants uh, arguing that they are not really an Islamic state. Saudi Arabia would be another one. But what, what in a sense, and that makes the comparison interesting, what sets um, Pakistan apart, at least in my mind, is that it, together with Israel, is the only state that was created uh, in which a primarily religious uh, identity was given uh, a, national, a national element to it. 
so you got a sort of religious nationalist uh, uh, development, and Israel obviously follows a very different course. And I guess the question there is whether or not in Israel you may have had stronger democratic institutions than you had in Pakistan, for one. But also, and you mentioned, you sort of referred to that with um, the reference to the the military viewing warfare warfare and, and, and defense of the country as jihad, um, and whether or not... In a, in a sense, the breeding ground for a, for militancy, not necessarily violence, but militancy as such, uh, is not sort of woven into the fabric of the state uh, almost from day one, and therefore also into significant segments of society. Yeah, so um, that's that, that that's a really important point. Yeah, and and the the comparison with Israel is is exactly you know. Um, it, it's, it's, it's notable. Um, and, and of course, Pakistan, uh, and perhaps even Israel would not, uh, I'm sure both countries would not care to be, um, compared, compared and, and lumped together as, as, as likes, right. <laughs> as like countries. But, but that comparison is, uh, I mean, is exactly is exactly right. Um, so the the religio the religious nationalism is is and the nationalism derived from religion uh, in this specific way is uh, exactly analogous. Um, on whether the the sort of the notion of you know the the country in some ways being ripe for militancy, whether it was not woven in. Um, from day one, I mean, I, you know, in the, in the, in the book, what I've tried to argue is that in, in some ways we can, uh, we can trace what came to pass, right? Retrospectively, exactly to how and why and sort of the manner in which Pakistan was created and how it's, uh, the, the first few years of the country unfolded, and in particular uh, to the fact that it was this weaker of the two nations, uh, you know, that came out of the uh, Indo, the, the Indian subcontinent uh, post uh, colonial rule, and that weakness obviously led to the rise of its militancy. Uh, sorry, its military. <laughs> um, and 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 the rise of its military has obviously the rise of its military and and in particular the uh, and the the dominance of its military in the country but the weakness of its military in um in comparison to india's you know larger stronger military and the the, the fact that the pakistani military lost the wars it fought with india have led the, the military to rely on uh, militant um, militant proxies um, like the the, the Lashkar e Taiba, for instance, and then later on the the Haqqani network as well um, uh, to the west. Uh, but the so you know and and what, so one can and, and the book tries to do exactly this. One can explain a way, sort of you know, looking at the 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 two pillars that the Pakistani state was founded upon, and in some ways, uh, in terms of its its definition of itself, you know, the the pillar of Islam and the anti-India element, and those two pillars, and how everything was built upon them, and how how the state responded to events such as the uh, Soviet-Afghan War um, in the 1980s um, and and uh, post-2001, um, how the Pakistani state responded to events can be um, all be traced back to, to it, you know, relying on those two pillars. However, um, you know, while it can be rationalized in that way, I, I do think that um, it could have taken 
I mean, it, it could, you know, one could also see a path that Pakistan could have devised where it rejected, um, especially if its democratic governments had had uh, more success, right? If its military um, had been in power, perhaps less, where it would have been able to reject some of those imperatives um, and not given into not given into to militancy. So, in some ways, you know, you're you're, you're right in the sense that it can be rationalized back to to 1947. Um, and, and certainly that's what I argue. Um, but one could imagine an alternative path that could have been plausible, um, uh, where, where these outcomes that we see today, um, uh, would not, do not exist, right. Or would not, would not exist in some ways the, I think the, and, and this goes back to your previous question as well, sort of. What Pakistan is struggling with right now is um, is extremism that continues sort of unabated in the country, um, and in particular, you know, there is um, the, this um, fundamentalist group uh, known as the Tehreek-e Lebek Pakistan, which argues for upholding Pakistan's blasphemy laws, um, and which um, has uh, which actually ran in the the twenty eighteen election, and while it did not win any seats in the national parliament uh, in the national assembly, um, it amassed you know more than two million votes uh, across the the country, um, uh, which which says that you know groups like it, uh, and and this is a new group you know sort of extremist groups like it, though, you know, the links with violence may not be fully formed, hold resonance. That can then, these groups can then morph into militant groups. And, you know, there are certainly some elements of the Tariq Lebek Pakistan who have engaged in violence. Um, the There was a... Um, a member uh, of the the Tehreek Lebek Pakistan who um, shot at the Interior Minister um, Esen Iqbal um, earlier this year. Um, you know, thankfully Esen Iqbal survived. But these kinds of groups, you know, these extremist groups that may then resort to violence, are something in some ways that is kind of a much more existential problem for Pakistan. Um, and and then militant groups that are waging um, an insurgency against the Pakistani state, um, such as the Pakistan Taliban, and, you know, and, and then we have, you know, we have sort of the, the Al-Qaeda, uh, uh, Afghan Taliban on, on sort of the, on the Western border, you know, Lashkar Taiba working on the, the Eastern border. Those groups can draw upon um, extreme extremists for support, um, but those groups may not necessarily, you know, for the Lashkar Taiba, we can we can certainly talk about this, but you know, the Al Qaeda, uh, Al Qaeda or or the Afghan Taliban. I mean, those groups are not necessarily the, the creation in some, you know, of of Pakistan, but those groups can then draw on the extremism in some ways that Pakistan has now kind of baked into its system. Um, and, and, and that is really, uh, in some ways, the much harder problem to solve. Um, and the, the kind of the slow, slippery slide <laughs> that, that the, the country has, has seen. I mean, <clears throat> sorry. Um, obviously, one can imagine a different uh, course of development without question. My guess is, although that's easy to say in hindsight, that on probability, this was the way it was going to go. Uh, and and the using of the proxies, I mean, that goes back almost to the beginning of, of the state, uh, which really raises the question of uh, and, and you do demonstrate clearly in the book that when the, the when the violence affects Pakistan domestically, then uh, Pakistanis turn against it. 
whereas if it's violence across the border uh, or against uh, blasphemists or whatever, then uh, there's a greater degree of empathy. But nonetheless, it does raise, on the one hand, the question of uh, uh, if you're going to make a, a, a distinction between groups that engage in violence that you view as as utilitarian or contribute contributing and groups that don't whether or not you can maintain that whether that is sustainable and granted violence has gone down significantly in Pakistan in the last couple of years but nonetheless you do have significant incidents as you saw in the election campaign uh, in Balochistan among other places uh, but the question is whether that's really sustainable or whether you don't get a backlash at, at some point. The other, the other thing I think also, you know, which mitigates uh, towards that it has to go this way, and it's also a difference with Israel, uh, you know, the Israelis didn't have Saudi Arabia in the background. <laughs> in, and, and, and that relationship and, and Saudi influence you know, goes almost back to 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 the very to the earliest of days, with you know Maududi Alal Maududi's relationship with Saudi Arabia, and his role in setting up institutions in in Saudi Arabia, as well as the Saudi role, including in in in, in uh, getting Maududi off the death sentence after the 50, 1953 anti Ahmadi riots in Lahore as well as in getting the constitutional uh, amendment on the uh, declaration of Ahmadis as non-Muslims. So you've had had that significant influence, which was often religious, but also on the Saudi part too, politically motivated. And so the question really is, yes, there was an alternative path, but was that really ever realistic? Um, yeah, no, abso- absolutely. Right. Um, the, the, look, I think, yeah, so, you know, I argue, for instance, that, um, if one is to point to a single, um, ruler and a single time period that was, the worst for for Pakistan's history. Um, That was Zia's time. But the foundation for Zia uh, had been set uh, by Bhutto, um, who was, um, you know, personally secular. But as you you mentioned, you know, he was prime minister um, in 1974 when the... um, uh, when Ahmadis were in effect declared non-Muslim, you know, obviously Zia took this to a much Zia, Zia took this much further uh, by you know declaring them non-Muslim by name as opposed to by by sort of belief, which is what Bhutto had done, and then criminalizing them posing as Muslim, and then Zia was the one who put in place the blasphemy laws. But in some ways, the foundation had been set not only not only not only obviously by Bhutto, but by um, the the constitution itself and and the the fact that the constitution had um these clauses um that uh focused on how to enable muslims to live their lives according to islam and how to not have any laws that were uh, that were repugnant to or ran contrary uh to islam um and that obviously had you know the the, the obviously the central point of the constitution is that that pakistan um is is an Islamic state, but had you know one one can sort of um, again <laughs> point to sort of the quirks of history. Um, in some ways, you know, had it not been Zia who um, who had had taken uh, power from from uh, Bhutto, who ousted Bhutto, um, uh, perhaps you know uh, Pakistan would be in in a in a somewhat different. Um, place uh, and again, you know, why was I able to take power because of the the dominance of you know that there there are structural reasons to that. It's not it's not just one person because it's because of the dominance of the Pakistani military. It's because Islamist parties were given this platform by um, 
by Pakistan's democratic as well as military governments to be able to, you know, run protest <laughs> campaigns against and put pressure, exert a lot of pressure on the on the Pakistani state, and and of course, um, uh, you know, Bhutto and and and. And 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 to weaken in some ways the democratic governments and 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 Puto really stood weakened by um, this alliance of Islamist parties, um, the the PNA, um, in in the nineteen seventies and and so you know again the situation was ripe for in some ways a, a military takeover, um, but going going um, you know addressing a couple of the your your uh, last two questions. Um, I, you know, you you'd asked about whether or not it's sustainable. Um, the in some ways, the the situation that Pakistan is currently in, whether or not it's um, sustainable, um, and in, in in terms of sort of the reduced levels of violence, but you know, extremism thriving, and then sort of this distinction that it has had over the last. Um, few years, uh, uh, which the Pakistani state, of course, denies, but it is apparent that it has this distinction, the the distinction between good militants and bad militants and, you know, good militants that serve a utilitarian purpose for the Pakistani state and bad militants that, that don't, uh, are the ones that don't. And of course, these definitions are changing, but as long as any militants serve a purpose for the Pakistani state and extremism continues to thrive in the country, there will always be the potential for um, those militants using the population um, to uh, to um, for violence, and then also the potential that they will turn against the Pakistani state, as they did um, with the Pakistan Taliban insurgency. You know, the Pakistan Taliban were initially considered good militants um, by the by the Pakistani state. You know, with with generals calling them their you know our brothers, and then of course um, they. Uh, they turned against the Pakistani state um, uh, and, and violently so. And now uh, they are the they are in the minds of the population as well as the state, the bad Taliban. Um, so so you know this process can certainly um, can certainly repeat itself, um, and and that is that is the the real the real danger. You know already we've seen uh, groups like ISIS, uh, for instance, recruiting from sectarian. Uh, militants, um, the Lashkar-e-Jhangvi, which you know, which existed long before the the Pakistan Taliban did, um, and um, and engaging in really violent uh, terrorist attacks um, over the last few years. So, um, so the potential is is always there. In some ways, it's sort of a cauldron, a cauldron that's bubbling, um, and and that uh, you're, you're right is is. Um, you know, it's 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 certainly there. Um, I think you you also mentioned um, uh, you also mentioned Saudi Arabia. So I um, and and I completely agree with um, your your assessment in terms of Saudi influence, and and that's what differentiates uh, the uh, the Israeli case, perhaps uh, from from Pakistan. Um, I I would argue that. Uh, you know that that Pakistan's path can also not be separated from its its relationship with uh, the United States, um, and uh, uh, and the the sort of sentiments of its population uh, towards the United States. Uh, you know, on, on balance, the the population tends to be it, it wasn't always so, but now now relatively anti-American, um, and in some in some. Um, ways the attitudes towards, for instance, groups like Al Qaeda. Um, while again, while Pakistanis will say that they reject violence, they'll say that they sympathize. And and again, you know, this is obviously bef- before um, you know some of these polls were actually undertaken when Al Qaeda was a, a stronger force than it is today. Um, but they would they would say that they do while they reject Al Qaeda as violence, they do sympathize with some of the ideology of, of Al-Qaeda. And so um, that is tied to Pakistan feeling um, uh, victimized by the, we- the West, feeling used by um, the U.S. 
to help fight the Soviet Afghan war in the 1980s and then be saddled, you know, this is one of the narratives that Pakistan has, be saddled with Afghan refugees that have exerted a great toll on the country uh, post, you know, the Soviet retreat in 1989. Um, and then again, you know, this, this, this post-2001, this narrative that... Um, Pakistan has helped the U.S. in the in the war on terror, only to be um, targeted with violence um, by this the the Pakistan Taliban insurgency. Uh, you know that that's a that's a, a narrative that the Pakistani people have had, and and you know the argument people will make is that had Pakistan not sided with with the U.S. Um, in two thousand and one. Of course, it, it really didn't have a choice, but people will make this argument that had Pakistan not sided with the U.S. in the war on terror, uh, Pakistan would not have had this blowback by the by the Pakistani Taliban. Um, and so I, th- I think it's inextricably, again, uh, tied with sort of, uh, some geopolitical factors, in particular its relationship with, with, um, uh, with the U.S. and with Saudi Arabia. No, I, I I agree with you on the relationship with the U.S. and um, and the uh, the strong Pakistani sentiment of having been used and then be dropped and betrayed whenever it no longer was uh, 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 was useful. Uh, and that relates, and I want to get to that in a second, uh, in part also to you know where you extensively in the book talk about the education system. But before we get to the education system, um, two quick things. One is, uh, yes, there is the relationship with the U.S., but what also strikes me that goes back to the uh, beginnings of our conversation, what also strikes me is that Pakistan from very early on had, there was a pan-Islamist element to, um, to, to its national identity. And it's in many ways, in some ways it's, unlike other Muslim states, almost saw itself on par with Saudi Arabia, minus the holy cities. And, and it was, you know, you saw that also in Pakistan, one of the, was one of the first Muslim states to uh, lend support, military support in the Bosnia war, for example. So I, it strikes me that, that that pan-Islamist element is one that is not always recognized but is significant. The other thing I noticed in your book, and you mentioned Lashkar Jangri, and if I'm not incorrect, you only mentioned it once in the book, and you made no mention of, uh, and I just wonder why, of, uh, for example, Sipa Sahaba and its uh, later incarnations. Yeah, so that, that's a that's a, a, a good observation. Um, I ultimately decided, um, and though sectarian violence has, um, uh, you know, been been something that has existed in Pakistan, you know, as as I mentioned much before this, um, the the more recent round of uh, terrorist and extremist violence, I I, I ultimately decided not to um, that it would. Uh, perhaps detract from the focus of the book in explaining this this current you know sort of uh, the 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 current struggle that that Pakistan has had you know post you know I would say 2007 onwards uh, post 2007 to to in particular you know 2016 um, with with uh, extremism and 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 uh, terrorism of of the the particular kind that it it had, but but uh, sort of the sectarian issues um, uh, certainly um, exist in Pakistan and and uh, are um, are tied to um, obviously the the state um, and while the state doesn't impose a particular version necessarily. Of, of Islam, right? So, you, you know, the Pakistani state is not like Iran or Iraq um, uh, or Saudi Arabia in that it Im- doesn't impose a particular brand of Islam on its citizens. It is pretty clear that because it is a majority Sunni um, 
country um and that though though you know again the 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 fact is that pakistan has had um um elected leaders uh who are who are shias uh that that is not an uh, like bhutto for instance the bhutto zardaris are shias that is not something that is touted that is not something that is talked about um so so while the sectarianism so sectarianism is something that stays on uh, under the wraps uh, under wraps you know from sort of the top um there is uh, uh, sort of uh, kind of selective uh impunity <laughs> for certain sectarian groups and and certainly you know uh, sunni sectarian groups have been able to um take advantage of the fact that you know the state perhaps looks at them with with um more gives them more impunity than than um shia sectarian groups um so so there's that um aspect of things um i think you you mentioned um a, a really good a really good point the, the pan islamist element and that is something um that really plays out uh, in in some ways in the in the pakistani psyche and i in the book i i try to bring that out um by the fact that pakistanis think that they are um that you know that they are in sort of alliance with and in friendship with uh countries across the muslim world so muslim countries um and that in some ways um and so you know the the opposition uh to uh, to the west for instance they'll sort of uh, some pakistanis will frame it as you know the us versus them the islam versus the west argument they'll also you know, you know i saw this in attitudes towards terrorism uh, towards uh, terrorist groups where pakistanis uh, you know one one popular sort of narrative it blames um uh, the west and india you know notably both non muslim um for for actually instigating terrorism in pakistan because they want they don't want islam to survive that is is what pakistanis will say they they don't want islam to survive and because they don't want islam to survive they are attacking pakistan so kind of this mantle in some ways of pakistan being an islamic state is something that's very important um and the sense that um you know when i when i uh, was interviewing students um you know i sort of asked them very um it's sort of an open ended kind of question you know who do you think are pakistan's friends and they would say you know we think all muslim we think muslim countries are pakistan's friends right um but of course uh you know th- th- that has its nuances um uh i got uh some some you know pakistanis have personal experience with the gulf states and some pakistani um and 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 many pakistanis sort of uh, migrate at least temporarily to the gulf states to send back remittances to um uh to their um their families and so some some uh pakistanis have seen um uh, because of their personal experience um uh, they have had uh, this kind of um uh they, they have a sorry I'm, I'm a little distracted because i there was a uh, Uh, a ping on my computer i don't know if it came out in the recording yeah i did hear it but don't worry about it okay um, we can i mean i can start off no, uh, from this it. point again so that we can edit that out okay all right um and i've shut that application down so hopefully that won't happen um so and so some pakistanis um ha- through their personal experience actually have uh not very favorable views of Saudi Arabia so that would be a very interesting thing to measure across the population you know what 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 are views really like in the population for Saudi Arabia and then the other interesting element is that you know when i asked um you know who are pakistan's friends you know us other than you know muslim nations they also said um china and um and that relationship goes obviously goes goes sort of you know as pakistan's leaders have repeatedly um sort of drilled into its citizens you know it's a, it's a deep friendship um and you know i i i it's notable that you know when when 
students uh, that I interviewed were saying, you know, Pakistan's sort of best friend is China. But China is obviously not uh, a Muslim country. Um, and they had just said in the sort of the previous kind of breath uh, that, that Pakistan has uh, is, is its friends, you know, its closest friends and allies are Muslim countries. So um, that's that's an interesting sort of fact uh, of, of, of Pakistan's relationships with its, um, you know, with its neighbors, Muslim countries and, and so on. Uh, the sectarian issue obviously takes a, a takes on added significance in in Pakistan. One because it borders on Iran, two because it has the largest uh, Shia minority in the world, and obviously with uh, the uh, increased U.S. pressure and, and Saudi campaign against uh, Iran, um, puts Balochistan sort of in the bullseye. Um, so, so in that sense, I mean, the sectarian issue is is maybe far more important, or has far more impact in, on, on on geopolitically than it does in in other countries. Um, I want to move on to the um, to the education uh, uh, part of your book, um, in which and, and and that goes back to I think uh, you know what I th- described as being woven into the DNA of the. Uh, of the country, uh, you know, if, if I were to summarize uh, what what you were saying is that a lot of the attitudes that 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 we're talking about are being are, are are built into the education system, whether or not that is the public education system or the, the government-run education system, or whether that is madrasas, religious seminaries, run by a very diverse range of groups um, uh, but the you know, a lot of the basic attitudes whether you know and obviously the, the state-run groups don't generate to that degree or schools don't generate to that degree people who are act really actually willing to go out and fight whereas some of the madrasas do um, you know we good if you could talk about that a little bit one one other sub remark on that is you go you you discuss at length the whole question of how many madrasas are there and how many pupils are there and if correct me if I'm wrong but you sort of come out on the side of the World Bank study that was done a number of years ago which put the number much lower uh, you know my sense is I've come to the conclusion that nobody knows and that that it, you know you can talk to authoritative sources, whether they are in government or outside of government, uh, and you will get vastly varying numbers. Uh, and, and 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 so I'm not I, I wouldn't take any of those numbers at face value. Uh, the other point, you know, you talk about the voluntary the commi- commission that they established what now 15 16 years ago for uh, for the voluntary registration of of madrasas and to me that committee uh, uh, is a perfect example of the lack of sincerity in any of this you know beyond the fact that it's voluntary as of last year for all its existence that committee has never had a budget and if it doesn't have a budget and it ha- it has no enforcement uh, powers, then it really is a fig leaf. <laughs> right. Right. No, those are those are really um, really really important points. So so let me let me sort of try to um, you know talk uh, about uh, these one by one. I mean, in some ways, so you know, as as you as you pointed out, sort of the. You know, I, I really talk about the Pakistan studies textbooks um, and and sort of how they inculcate these notions of Pakistan being an Islamic state, Pakistan being under threat from India, Pakistan being a victim of the West. You know, the, the glorification of jihad, um, these biased views, um, uh, and sort of encourage conspiracy theories, uh, and essentially create these sort of non-thinking um, citizens that are unable to. Um, sort of reject that, that reject militant propaganda that can accept uh, extremist 
um, propaganda because it fits in with the worldview that they have been taught um, in in schools. But I think what I want to sort of emphasize there is um, the fact you know you you mentioned that this was sort of built into the DNA, but that but the education system was not always like this, and in fact in um, 1979, it was Zia again who actually um, issued an order basically saying that um, Pakistan studies textbooks need to be written in a way that um, essentially furthers the ultimate goal of Pakistan. And this is sort of a direct quote, you know, the creation of a completely Islamized state. Um, and so these textbooks, for instance, you know, these Pakistan studies textbooks from public schools um, uh, you know, are entirely different from the textbooks, uh, the way the textbooks looked in uh, the 1960s um, and, and the 1970s. Um, uh, I, I showed the, the current textbooks to, to the generation that had actually gone to school in the 1960s, and they um, could not recognize, uh, you, you know, uh, them, right? So um, it's... Uh, uh, fascinating um, uh, to and and you know and others have actually also written about the fact you know uh, people who have who actually did go to school in the 1960s 70s have, have talked about this you know Pervez Hoodboy and A.H. Um, Nayer um, had a paper come out in the in the mid 1980s when the the Islamization, you know, of the textbooks was underway and 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 talked about how they're they're now unrecognizable and um, the uh, so 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 that you know in some and the notion of the Pakistan ideology and they talked about that um, at length and I and I uh, quote um, some of that in in my book that notion of the Pakistan ideology was something being Islam and that is what sort of the central you know the, the first chapter in these Pakistan studies textbooks and I should note here that the Pakistan studies course is a compulsory course for um, for high school as well as college and even professional education. So for students studying to be engineers or doctors, they have to study these, um, these textbooks. Um, so the, the notion of the Pakistan ideology being Islam, the, which is sort of where the textbooks begin from, this notion was something that was kind of cooked up <laughs> and inserted uh, in there with the help of the Jamaat-e-Islami party. Um, and um, so, so again, we, we go back to the idea that while, you know, perhaps this was inevitable, right, um, with the fact that... Uh, the state was slowly Islamizing, um, and education is obviously a key avenue for for inculcating that Islamization in its citizens. Um, it did not occur until um, uh, more than thirty years into into Pakistan's creation that the textbooks were sort of changed uh, in this drastic way, and now they're impossible to essentially change back. <laughs> and so, while Musharraf actually engaged in at the same time as this sort of the the uh, registration of madrasas ordinance, and I'll, I'll talk about that in a second. Um, you know, Musharraf also tried to engage in a curriculum reform. Um, uh, for public school curricula, you know, basically because of various reasons, um, uh, 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 not the least of them being the fact that uh, essentially now you have an entire bureaucracy that has been schooled in this education system. You know, there was enough pushback on the reform that uh, in essence, what has been implemented is really a watered down version of what uh, Musharraf had tried to, um, you know, had tried to introduce. And essentially, you know, the key elements, the Pakistan ideology being Islam, et cetera, remain. And uh, I think also notable is the fact that all levels textbooks, which are um, in which Pakistan studies is a core subject, you know, really teach some of the same material in a markedly different way. And you see attitudes of O-level students um, uh, who are taking these Cambridge board exams being very different uh, from uh, from those students who went to the public schools. Um, and obviously, this could be this could be selection. You know, their families are are, are different. Uh, but but the fact remains that those you know that. These curricula affect attitudes, and these curricula are not, and curricula are not the same for for people 
uh, for for students, uh, you know, depending on uh, on which system they're in. And of course, you know, I you also see that older Pakistanis have sort of better views on a whole host of dimensions relative to younger Pakistanis. And again, you know, one can point to the fact that the older Pakistanis have seen a different curriculum. Um, and 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 so uh, you know, we see how how tangible its effects are. Um, on on madrasas and on numbers uh, of madrasas. Um, I, you know, I, I noted, I mean, the, 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 there is a lot of careful analysis that has gone into those uh, World Bank um, uh, uh, and academic studies of uh, madrasa numbers. But I, as I noted, the, A, the numbers are necessarily an underestimate because um, they talk about those madrasa students for whom attending a madrasa was their primary form of education. And there, you know, madrasas have, uh, students under, attend madrasas, ha, you know, part-time. And of course, the influence of madrasas is much more than enrollment in any case, because madrasa graduates go on to become Islamic studies teachers in schools, and madrasa graduates go on to become imams and mosques. And so their influence kind of permeates society far beyond their numbers, which, you know, again, if, if you take the, the Harvard study, uh, the Harvard World Bank um, study, they are necessarily an underestimate. I think that's um, sort of the, the, the first uh, point. And in some sense, the numbers are besides the point because, um, because of the fact that um, the madrasas that you know, there are militant madrasas that still exist, you know. So even if it's a small number of, of madrasas, there are madrasas that are teaching sort of virulently militant material um, in the mainstream in the country to the extent that those graduates can then go on and multiply, let's say, go on to become an Islamic studies teacher in a school, go on to become an imam in a mosque, go on to recruit students for um, uh, militant activities. Um, in some ways, even if there's only just one madrasa that's remaining, it's still a big problem. You know, um, the fact is that, and, and I talk about this in the book, the Darul Ulum Hakania in Akora Katak still exists um, in in the Khyber Pakhtunkhwa province, it's known to be uh, and sort of an incubator for the for the Taliban. It still exists. It's still being given funding by the government um, for by Imran Khan's government. He claimed that this was to regulate, and you know he claims again. So the the, the whole issue of madrasa education is a very charged one, and this again goes back to the the fact that Islamists don't want any regulation of the madrasa system. They will argue that it is Western influence that is trying to, um, uh, you know, sort of uh, impose Western values and Western education on Pakistan. And that's what they accuse Musharraf of doing with the, the voluntary registration of madrasas. And they basically resisted it to the point at which it, the, the ordinance completely has become ineffective. Similarly, even now, the National Action Plan talks about the registration of madrasas, um, and the regulation of madrasas. And Imran Khan talks about, um, I mean, he talks about something that uh, other other Pakistani politicians have also talked about, about sort of bringing madrasas into the mainstream. So having madrasas exist, but um, having them teach, um, you know, regular math, science, um, uh, uh, and, and, and sort of regular sort of mainstream subjects. Um, uh, in addition to their religious uh, education. Um, and that's what, you know, many Pakistani politicians have argued for. And it's arguably, um, at least according to the, the his party, in that vein that they, they allocated money to the Darul Alum Haqqaniya. But, you know, it's, it's ties kind of, it's ties to, to militants are undisputed. So um, one really wonders, you know, what, um, what, the, what the incentive was there. Um, so madrasas are a really, intra- they have been an intractable issue, again, because of the, the fact that the Pakistani state is unable to uh, control Islamist parties who will really loudly argue against any reform or regulation of madrasas. You know, in particular, somebody like Fazlur Rahman, who argues against this, you know, anytime the topic comes up, Fazlur Rahman wasn't even elected this time around. So, you know, he was rejected by Pakistani voters, yet still um, 
you know, the the state is unable to uh, resist <laughs> his um, the the pressure that 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 he and others put on it um, to to let the madrasa issue be. Right. Uh, I guess the question is whether it's unwilling or unable. Unfortunately, Madiha, we could go on for another hour, and I would love to, but the clock is ticking. Yes, yes. <laughs> what I what I would like to ask you before we um, come to the end of this is, where do you go from here? What's your next project? Yeah. So I'm, I'm doing a couple of things right now. Um, one is actually now, uh, in, in some ways, you know, the, the life cycle of research is, is, is fascinating. Now I've, I've been working um, on um, some of the original work uh, that, that I had actually started with when I started researching Pakistan on Pakistani politics and democracy and voter behavior and, and performance, because those issues have become really um, came very tangibly to the fore in this 2018 election. So issues of horse trading, issues of incumbency disadvantage, issues of, you know, uh, what, how can politicians be incentivized to not provide patronage and actually engage in um, important uh, uh, the, the, the duties for which they are elected, which are legislative duties in parliament and so on. So sort of kind of a more political economy approach uh, to the country. And then I think the the second thing um, that I, I want to sort of focus on going forward is really taking some of the, um, the methods that I've used uh, here um, in, in, in this book, looking at the links between education and extremism, uh, looking at polling data and, and looking at kind of a more contextual um, historical narrative of, of various contexts to establish the roots of extremism uh, uh, beyond Pakistan. So um, uh, in particular, thinking about um, uh, the African uh, context and thinking about, you know, the, the roots of uh, the extremism in Nigeria, the, the, the Boko Haram case, um, and then looking at how we can really connect extremism to violent uh, extremism. Uh, you know, what, what is it that uh, links, links attitudes to actual violence? Um, and so, again, trying to use an inter- interdisciplinary approach to resolving that question. Both of those are particularly relevant topics. Thank you very much for being on the show today. I really enjoyed it and take care. My pleasure. Thanks for having me on. <laughs>